Welcome to a new edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm John Lauk, your host, and our show is produced by Dana Brown. Today we are joined by Nancy Burlog, who is currently an assistant professor of history at Texas State University in San Marcos. Nancy received her Ph.D. and M.A. in history from the Johns Hopkins University and her B.A. from the University of Chicago. Nancy has a brand new book out entitled Farmers Helping Farmers, The Rise of the Farm and Home Bureaus, which was published in 2016 by Louisiana State University Press. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thank you so much, John. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. This is my first podcast. I'm really excited at that and to talk with you about Midwestern history and culture and anything else you want to throw out there. Well, thanks, Nancy, for diving right in. Um, We are big fans of the podcast world, and we are very uh, excited about all the new shows that are popping up out there uh, that relate to American history. So let's talk about your work, Nancy. Uh, you grew up on a family farm near Elizabeth, Illinois. Uh, did this experience generate some interest in you in Midwestern history, and did it lead to some of the work you've done as a historian? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm very attached to the Midwest, and in particular, the beautiful region where I grew up, which is Joe Davies County in northern Illinois. It's right on the border of Illinois and Wisconsin, right next to the Mississippi River. And as you said, my uh, parents were farmers, as were many of my relatives who lived in the community. Uh, I grew up helping around on the farm. But I also was a very much a bookworm, so I spent a lot of my time reading indoors while my three older sisters were outside, uh, probably being more helpful on the on the farm than I was. However, um, I also always had a love of history. I remember growing up, my grandparents would take us for Sunday drives to the country, that sort of old... Um, pastime that people in the country used to do and we would always go to historical sites uh, historical markers museums and that sort of thing and so that really cultivated my love of history um when i went off to college i realized that i was probably one of the only people with a rural background uh, at the university of chicago or, or, or with a farm background and i would continue to notice that for the rest of my life and I, I couldn't, my calling was not to be a farmer. And I thought if I couldn't be a farmer, then I could at least write about farming. And at the University of Chicago, I had the immense pleasure to be working with some professors who had me read about farm history and farm communities and the American Farm Bureau Federation, things which I'd never read about or even thought historically about. And that really sparked my interest. And I also thought, hey, I think they're getting it not quite right because they're looking at this national political scene and really ignoring what was happening at the community and local level and people and individuals themselves. And I really wanted to make that part of the story. So I wanted to bring 
I think my background did bring some insight as long as I was aware of the biases and pers- uh, you know, particular perspectives that I had from that. But that if I could marry that with history, then that would help me combine my love of the land and my family and community that they still very strongly have with that other love of history. Now, just so I understand this, did you say at the University of Chicago, uh, one of your professors assigned some historical works about the Farm Bureau? Yes, in fact, I had two professors who did that. Uh, One was a political scientist, David Greenstone, um, who had me read about um, the American Farm Bureau Federation in a book written by um, classic book written by oh my gosh I think the name's escaping me all of a sudden um, Grant McConnell sorry for Grant McConnell who had written about um, the American Farm Bureau Federation in the 50s uh, in a very critical way suggesting that the uh, Federation had taken over uh, control of politics in an interest group manner in a way that was very um not very helpful to the broader American public. So he's very critical of the Farm Bureau. I also had another political science professor who wrote a book on the American Farm Bureau Federation. And he wrote a book on um, its relationship with Congress. And his main idea was that, yes, we had this sort of rise of interest group politics that the AFDS represented. But what that group did is it formed a well of expertise and knowledge um, about agriculture and um, agricultural's relationship to farmers and farm communities that Congress people could never get on their own. Um, think issues were becoming just too complex. So he argued that the American Farm Bureau Federation pioneered a new type of politics, interest group politics, but that, that was not all bad because it had this other function of of being able to provide the expertise that Congress needed to develop and implement the policy. Well, I'm very glad to hear that uh, you picked up some um, assignments at the University of Chicago about rural history and the Farm Bureau in particular. Uh, that does That's not a common phenomena, I would say. So, no, I don't think it is. So kudos to the University of Chicago. Before we leave um, your uh, personal story, Nancy, I wanted to ask again, what was the name of that county in northern Illinois that you grew up in? Um, It's Joe Davies County, and that's spelled J-O-D-A-V-I-E-S-S, sort of an odd spelling, and it's... Do you know the backstory on on that name? I need to do a little bit more history on my my own um, origin, uh, original county. Right? <laughs> but I believe he was Joe Davies may have that have been the name of the uh, original founders of the county. Okay, interesting. I, I just don't think it was two people named. I don't. I think the last name was Davies, and anyway. So. Okay, it's just a very interesting and unique name, so it kind of caught my ear. Uh, that that area of Illinois, and uh, you're very close to Wisconsin, you mentioned, uh, would that be considered the driftless area of, uh, of the Midwest? Um, we usually don't refer it 
refer to it that way, although it, it's an extremely hilly area where apparently the glaciers did not um, go over but surrounded that area. Um, and as, unlike the rest of Illinois, it's very hilly and not flat. Right, right. All right, so um, let Much more like the jump rolling hills of lower Wisconsin. So let's jump ahead to the next stage of your education. You finished up at the University of Chicago and went off to Johns Hopkins. Uh, what was that like and who did you study with at Johns Hopkins? Well, I at first, before going off to Baltimore, I worked for two years in Chicago at a very large law firm. I thought that I might want to go to law school. And then after more with law, I realized history really was the thing for me. So I decided to um, apply to a variety of schools, and then I, I decided to go to Johns Hopkins in particular because there was a very prominent business and economic and uh, political historian by the name of Lou Galambos, who had long at Johns Hopkins, and he was very interested with, in my topic. He wanted me to write about the Farm Bureau. And that was something I continued to want to do. So that seemed like a very good match. And indeed, he knew some of the professors that I had had at the University of Chicago who first got me interested in the program. So I was very fortunate to be accepted into the program and then also to have Lou as a professor. And then later on, I started to pick up some other subjects such as women and gender history. And I learned, I took some uh, French history with a prominent um, French historian who also studied rural history, so lots of things came together to make Johns Hopkins History Department just a wonderful learning environment. You uh, mentioned Lou Galambos. Uh, when I went to graduate school many moons ago, I uh, studied with Ellis Hawley, and Ellis Hawley and Lou Galambos were very close, and they were both advocates of what was known as the organizational synthesis of American history. Um, was Professor Galambo still interested in that when you were in graduate school and an advocate of it? Yes, he was. You have, he was still writing about that, and that was the way that his seminar courses were much organized around that interpretive framework. So, um, and I, of course, read multiple works by Ellis Hawley and was very um, impressed in, with his interpretation of the associative state. And that idea of um, the associative state and the organizational synthesis both provided me with a broad framework for the kinds of topics that I wrote about in my dissertation. I'm trying to look at the Farm Bureau, providing those sort of bottom-up um, communities, human um, uh, uh, interpretations, but also sort of with this broader framework of understanding how technology, science, and um, increasing types of bureaucratic organization, as well as tremendous growth of the state, not just in formal politics, but in places outside of that, that Alice Hawley wrote about, all of those things helped me come up with my own interpretation of, of how the Farm Bureau was changing at the local level. 
I remember in um, Professor Hawley's seminar, a few people working on questions of rural history and agricultural history. I remember uh, his student, David Hamilton, wrote a book about the impact of the associative state on the New Deal policymaking years. And uh, Kim Porter, I believe, was an Ellis Hawley student who I believe wrote about the Farm Bureau in Iowa. Um, and I cannot remember if I'm thinking of the dissertation now or if I'm actually thinking of the book she uh, ultimately put out. But uh, given that he was in Iowa, I think there was quite a bit of uh, interest in writing about farm politics. Um, and uh, since Ellis Hawley was the 20th century historian there, he ended up doing a lot of that work. And including that in led to my dissertation, too, um, on post-war farm politics and farm policymaking and the problem of monopoly, which is the f famous book that um, Ellis published in 1966. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't realize that we had uh, all these sort of second-degree connections <laughs> through our advisors. I know. I know. So tell us about the process at Johns Hopkins, uh, choosing your topic and completing uh, the dissertation, and uh, what was that process like, and where did you do your research? Organizational synthesis 
framework up to that point. So um, that was also very enlightening for me and uh, something I'm very grateful that I was able to also um, gain a handle on including sort of women. And that's really become a passion of including that in my work since that point in time. Uh, the process was long for me. It took me, uh, I was at Johns Hopkins for about 10 years. And um, during that time, I also wrote a book chapter, so that took some time off of my publishing or my ending my dissertation. And I wrote a chapter on uh, uh, American, excuse me, Cornell's Home Economics Program and Social Sciences, which was published in a book called Gender and American Social Science. And so during the um, 90s, I continued to write and essentially in research, I went um, back to the Midwest, traveled to Wisconsin, Iowa, the University of Iowa, Iowa State Archives, uh, again, various private organizations, the State Historical Societies of both Iowa and Wisconsin. I also spent a summer at Cornell University, which has a very large collection on farm history, particularly on farm bureau history and home bureau history in the state at the local level. Um, Cornell being a very prominent agricultural college throughout the early 20th century, home economics college. I won a fellowship to go to Cornell, so that helped me a lot on being able to afford that travel and to support that research. And then once I began the writing uh, process, it started out rather slowly, but I think once I got going and got the first draft, then it went rather quickly. So I was able to finish up by the year 2000. In terms of the uh, growth and emergence of the Farm Bureau, Nancy, would you describe it as a Midwestern organization? I mean, did it come out of Midwestern states and was it more prominent in states in the Midwest? I know it's particularly associated with Illinois and it used to be uh, very prominent in Illinois, but I'm just wondering what you found in your research. Yeah, I definitely found that the Farm Bureau, um, the early Farm Bureau, which arose first at the community level, um, at the county level, was that the, the early origins were definitely located in Illinois, but also Iowa was very prominent, um, very prominent in the early organizing. Simultaneously, that early organizing was going on in New York. And they were doing some of the very same things um, all three states uh, sort of compete to claim who had the first Farm Bureau, but I believe it actually is DeKalb County Farm Bureau in Illinois. And particularly early on, um, as the Farm Bureau grew and developed into a national organization by 1919 when the AFF Federation was formed, um, the leadership was very Midwestern. We had James Howard as president for a number of years. He was from Iowa. Um, subsequently, we had a president of the American Farm Bureau Federation from Illinois. And New York also had a strong leadership, and there was some tension 
between the regions in terms of which direction they wanted the organizations to go, at least at the upper level, at the very state federation and national organization levels, or I found at the community levels, both in the Midwestern regions, particularly Illinois and Iowa, they were really kind of trying to do a lot of the same things at the local level. They were interested not just in politics, but they were really interested in things bringing science to the community, figuring out how farmers and farm families could stay on the farm during this period of the 10s and 20s when the economy, particularly by the 20s, was really in a downspin for uh, farms. Um, and it was also, this period was a time of tremendous change in terms of increasing immigration and increasing industrialization. And indeed, I think, um, Many of these members also felt a decline in their cultural authority and cultural status as well as the economic piece of it. And I think that that was also, the Farm Bureau became a way for them to sort of um, come together, uh, proclaim their values, proclaim how um, they wanted, what they wanted rural America to look like, but also how to, they thought it could be improved to keep Americans on the farm because they clearly thought that was the best way of farming. So yes, I found that the primary uh, pulse uh, for organization I think was really strong in Illinois, Iowa, but also Ohio, Indiana, um, and, and also very much in New York. Subsequently, by the 30s, the South became much more important. We get a, the, the president from Alabama, uh, Edward O'Neill, and so the, the regional power starts to shift a little bit. But for the first 20 years of development, very much, I would say, in Midwestern, we uh, are familiar probably with the role of the Farm Bureau in terms of politics and and farm policy, etc. But one thing that you have emphasized is its role in culture and its role in promoting rural culture and sponsoring um, local pageants and plays and spelling bees and book clubs and whatnot. Can you talk about that aspect of the rural Midwest and the Farm Bureau? Yes, um, particularly this aspect of rural culture. I did write a little bit about in the book in terms of how the Farm Bureau uh, was very invested in developing social means of organization, developing, as you pointed out, book clubs, um, baseball clubs were another big um, defense that local Farm Bureaus formed, um, annual picnics, um, showing films. Uh, so I am now moving further in that direction and engaged in some new work where, as you pointed out, I'm very interested in something called historical pageantry, which uh, was this phenomenon developing in the 1920s throughout the nation, but also in farm and rural areas in the Midwest, um, where communities would put on pageants uh, put on pageants where the plot was all about farming both what they thought the past looked like which wasn't always very accurate as a way to sort of predict and foretell what the future should look like both in terms of how important farm people should be in the future how they should live what roles women should have in a home and a community what i also really love about these pageants is the sort of unique 
cultural idioms and cultural figures they're drawing on to represent their ideas, which are, which seems rather folksy or silly um, to us today, potentially. But yeah, talking about things like um, imps and fairies and crusading medieval knights and um, spirits such as the spirit of agriculture and the spirit of learning, which were represented by, you know, women in white robes and sashes around their waist. And I'm really sort of fascinated by that aspect, um, the representations of sort of what we call modernist culture, um, modernist dance was also included in these pageants uh, as pioneered by the famous dancer Isabel Duncan of the period. So I'm very interested in Again, so this, these, these symbols may look very folksy, but at the same time, they were at the very, very forefront of what were used at a national level and what were considered modern symbols of, uh, of allegorical representations. You, uh, you mentioned the, the references to knights, uh, medieval knights. I've uh, done some research on rural culture, late 19th century um, and mid 19th century. And one of the things that I noticed um, that was right in front of my nose, but for many months I didn't take note of it, and that was the prominence of Sir Walter Scott and Ivanhoe in rural culture, and it may have been, along with Horatio Alger, uh, the most widely read book in some of these places in the rural Midwest. And uh, I think when I finally pieced it all together or began to think uh, about this a little bit more was when I ran across this little town, I believe it was in South Dakota or Minnesota, called Ivanhoe. And I looked up in the names book, why did they name it Ivanhoe? Uh, because the people who founded the town liked Sir Walter Scott. So this is, uh, this is a very interesting uh, research path you're going down. I was also going to note for our listeners, we've talked about this in the past, Nancy, but I uh, had on the podcast recently Larry Lockridge, who wrote a book about the famous novel that his father wrote uh, set in Indiana called Rain Tree County. And his father was very famous novelist, etc. But his grandfather, who is forgotten, Ross Lockridge Sr., his specialty was going around Indiana and giving these historical pageants about not just Indiana history, but Midwestern history. And um, this, was a, this was a prominent cultural phenomena in the rural Midwest in this period of time we're interested in. So I think you're on to a, a great topic here. Yeah, that's really fascinating about uh, Ivanhoe and Sir Walter Scott. I didn't, uh, I did not realize he was so widely read during that period in the rural culture. So that that really puts a piece together for me, also that I will find useful. Um, Maybe by the early twentieth century, Scott has a bit lost its meaning as this as sort of just the crusading knights become the symbol for everything that that Scott wrote about. I'm not quite sure we'll have to explore it and talk about that more. Right. 
Uh, Nancy, I wanted to ask you about another famous Midwesterner that uh, you worked on. I noticed that you did some work uh, for the Eisenhower Papers when you were at Johns Hopkins University. And we have a lot of uh, graduate students who listen to our show who are interested in these various kinds of projects and jobs out there. Can you explain to us uh, what that work entailed and how you got into it? Sure. Um, That was a fabulous um, project that I had the privilege to be involved with. I got involved with it early on because um, my advisor, again, Lou Galambos, was the chief editor of this paper's project. What this project was, was the preparation and the printing and the annotation of various letters that Eisenhower had written to colleagues, friends, press, etc., the kinds of documents that are not published in the official um, documents of the president that are printed by the presidential library. So there was a real um, space and need to print these letters to learn more about Eisenhower. So the project has been going on for about 18 or 17 years when I joined the project. And that's, and that's not atypical for these types of documentary projects. Um, and what I did on the project was, again, read Eisenhower's correspondence that had been chosen by the editors to print in this book. And then I would write annotations explaining various things that Eisenhower had referred to in the letter because it may not be obvious to readers uh, do the historical research and then write explanations and footnotes to the letters. Uh, Then when all these letters are put together in a volume, one might be able to trace the train of thought, the train of correspondence that was going through all these letters through these different volumes. And that project um, had sort of a, a record quick completion and had it finished within 20 years um, I believe it was early 2002 when it when it when the project finished to much acclaim and there's been subsequently an electronic version and um, yeah there were several other colleagues from Johns Hopkins and other graduate students who worked on the project and that's something that I have um, very been very interested in hoping to acquire a new project in my own work here at Texas State because I think it brings a fabulous opportunity to graduate students to work on that type of documentary editing project, particularly as they go increasingly digital. Um, as you may know, I teach um, public history to a significant extent here at Texas State University, and I see documentary editing as another branch within the umbrella of public history that students who want to work with history but not go into academia can find a job in once they graduate. This is John Lauk, the host of Heartland History. We have been joined today by Nancy Burlog, who is a professor of history at Texas State University in San Marcos. Nancy grew up at the corner of the three Midwestern states of Iowa, Illinois, and Wisconsin. She has a new book out entitled 
Farmers Helping Farmers, The Rise of the Farm and Home Bureaus, which was published last year by Louisiana State University Press. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Thank you for joining us today, Nancy, and we look forward to seeing you this summer at the Midwestern History Association Conference in Michigan on June 7th. Thanks again, Nancy. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at MidwesternHistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.